everyone, it's Jules, your host of the All Things Ison podcast. This is a special episode that is dedicated to five badass women in Iceland's history. And I wanted to do an episode in honor of some historic women in Iceland's history. Of course, there are way more than five, but I feel that at least in this episode, I can speak about some of the women that maybe you have heard of and others that you have probably never learned about. All of them have made a significant impact on Iceland and the progression of the society for everyone here. Before I jump into speaking about each woman, what I will do first is give a bit of history about Iceland regarding suffrage and a significant impact that Icelandic women's organizations had in the country. These organizations were formed before women had the right to vote. And after going over each of the phenomenal women's backgrounds, I share a little timeline of significant moments in Icelandic history that are related to women's rights and equal rights. Because really, when we're boiling down women's rights, we're talking about equality. The Women's History Archives was founded in January of 1975 by three Icelandic women. Since 1996, it has been a special entity within the National Library of Iceland. There's so much information there, and I will have links to that website in the show notes if you want to check it out and learn more. So regarding the history of the nation and in terms of suffrage, I think it's important and super fascinating to share some history about how the the way that Iceland was governed by Denmark played a significant role in the rights of women in the country. So at the beginning of the, eight, the 19th century, which essentially is the beginning of the 1800s, Iceland did not have many people residing in the country. The ones that did live here were farmers and that, of course, included their wives and their kids, people who worked as laborers and maids. There was not a middle class until later in the 20th century. And the reason this is significant to mention is because it's often thought that the middle class are the backbone of social movements. Another interesting tidbit is that from 1845, the right to vote for men in Iceland was limited to those that were a certain age that paid taxes and had property. That changed in 1903, but still, that means that more than 50 years went by where only men with certain status in society had the right to vote here. Another kind of layer on top of that <laughs> is that Icelandic parliament discussed women's suffrage more than once in the 19th century. And most parliamentarians, and this is according to the Women's Archives website, supported it. However, all bills that contained women's suffrage were vetoed by Danish authorities. Those bills also proposed changes in the relationship between the countries as well. So that probably had a significant role there, <laughs> meaning that how Iceland and Denmark are, their relationship is what I'm referring to. So it's kind of not surprising that those bills would be vetoed, but I am surprised about how progressive parliament was regarding that topic back in the day. For those who are not aware, Iceland didn't become a sovereign state until 1918 and declared independence in 1944. Now on to the role of women's organizations in Icelandic history. Iceland's first women's organization was founded in the countryside in 1869. Its focus was to foster more unity and cooperation among women in the region. They also collected money to buy a knitting machine that all members could use. And in essence, I mean, this is a livelihood issue, meaning like being able to knit 
and sell those things because that was something that Iceland was exporting. So economically, this was important to Icelandic families. Most women's organizations at the time were focused on helping the sick and the poor. Then Iceland did not have a national healthcare system and the municipalities were barely providing any social help. So by stepping in to help, these women's organizations played a significant role in shaping the welfare state of the country. These organizations provided home care for the sick and created a healthcare center in Reykjavik. So major contributions were made by these women's organizations. Of course, a lot of it was out of necessity, but also, I mean, just the fact that seeing people suffer and realizing that they needed to help, I think it's just amazing that people were like, no, we're not going to sit by and wait for something to happen. Instead, these women just took the initiative. And on top of that, they were not educated in terms of more than an elementary education by the established institutions at the time. So women were allowed to go kind of beyond just the really basic stuff. And so I, some Icelandic women were like, no, we're not standing for this. This is ridiculous. So they decided to create their own public schools between 1874 and 1879. In 1915, Parliament voted to give women the right to vote. However, this was a bit odd because it only allowed women over the age of 40 to vote. So very ageist in that regard. And nowhere else in the world was women's suffrage restricted in this particular way. So this caused an issue too. It caused a rift as well, knowing that it was women of a certain age. Thankfully, it didn't stay like that for too long, but it wasn't the best start in terms of women getting the right to vote. So now that I've given you just a brief background about suffrage here in Iceland, I'm going to move on to the five badass women. And I'm starting out with kind of oldest, meaning like the person who is born the earliest and then moving on from there. So the first person is Briet Bjarnheidensdottir. And she was born in 1856 and lived until 1940. She was an early advocate for women's liberation and suffrage in Iceland. She's an educated school teacher and graduated from a women's school in 1880. In 1887, she began working in Reykjavik. And starting in 1885, she wrote various articles for women's rights under the signature ISA. And when she moved to the capital, she held speeches for women's rights, which was awesome. And she founded a women's society in 1894 as well as managed a women's magazine, Kvinna from 1895 to 1926, co-founded a journalist society and managed a children's magazine. So she was definitely busy. <laughs> and what's super, what's fascinating to me about her is that it was only after visiting the U.S., Denmark, Sweden, and Norway that she had learned about the international women's movement. And by fate, she met Carrie Chapman Catt, an American women's suffrage leader who campaigned for the 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which gave U.S. women the right to vote in 1920. So she met her at the International Women's Suffrage Conference in Copenhagen. Carrie encouraged Briet to start a women's suffrage society in Iceland. So in 1907, that is exactly what Briet did. And it was called Finn Rettinda Fjellag Islands, which is literally like women's rights society in Iceland. Briet was the president from 1907 to 1911 and also from 1912 to 1927. She belonged to the first group of women that were elected to the Reykjavik City Council. 
She also served in 1908 to 1912 and 1914 to 1920. She did run for a seat in parliament in 1916 and 1926, but unfortunately was not successful. Regardless though, her contribution to Iceland has been so impactful and I feel like she's just one of those women that people need to know about. Next up is Inki Björnason. So she was born in 1867 and died in 1941. She was an Icelandic politician, suffragist, school teacher, and gymnast. She was the first woman to become a member of Althinki, which is the parliament of Iceland. After her father died when she was a teenager, she moved to Reykjavik and attended the Reykjavik Women's College, which was called Kvinnaskolen. And she graduated from that college in 1882 and relocated to Denmark to study gymnastics. And this made her the first Icelander to do so. After she returned to Reykjavik in 1893 to teach gymnastics at the children's school. And in 1903, she returned to Women's College as a teacher. And she became the school principal in 1906 and held the position for 35 years until her death. So in terms of Inki Björk, which I think is interesting in about her name. So her name is Inki Björk Björnason. And normally you hear Icelanders, you know, having like Dochter, because she's a female. And her father's name was Hakon Björnason. So it's possible that when she went to Denmark, she used her father's last name, perhaps, <laughs> and then just kept that. I'm not exactly sure. I was trying to find this out because her mom's name is Johanna Kristin Thorleif's Dochter. So obviously her parents were using these kind of, you know, unique last names, unique to Iceland anyway. I wasn't able to find, you know, the reason for it for this episode, but if I do find it out, I will for sure write it in the show notes. And in terms of her political career, she became involved in women's suffrage movement in Iceland in 1894. And after women won the right to vote, Inki Björk was chosen by women's organization to do the celebratory speech in front of parliament. She was also elected to head a committee to raise funds to build a hospital, which ended up being Landspitali, which is the National University Hospital. And this hospital was a way to commemorate winning the right for women in Iceland to vote. And as I mentioned earlier, she, had be, she became the first woman to be a parliamentarian, and that was in 1922. In the beginning, she ran as an independent member, but then later she joined the Conservative Party. And her main focus as a parliamentarian was on women's and children's rights. After retiring from politics, she was still active in the movement for women's liberation. And she became a founding chairperson of the women's organization Kvinn Fjellag Sambans Islands in 1930. However, she did face some criticism in her career, particularly for her alignment with the Conservative Party and for supporting the creation of home economics schools. Next up, I'd like to talk about Sigridur Tomasdotter, which you might have seen a memorial plaque to if you've been to Gutfoss Waterfall, but had no idea the backstory of why this woman's image was there. And so Sigridur was born in Bratholt in 1874 and grew up on her family's sheep farm. She didn't have any formal education, but she was well-read and quite artistic. Interestingly, she and her steer would guide visitors to the waterfalls near her home. So if people came to, you know, check out a waterfall, they would guide them around and show them all like the best angles and things of that nature. And one of those waterfalls was Gutsfoss. And that is significant because she loved this waterfall. 
and she fought a long legal battle to keep it intact. So at one point, Gutzfoss Waterfall was under attack in that foreign investors in 1907 tried to get Sigurdur's father, Thomas Thomason, to sell Gutzfoss to them so they could harness its power to create a hydroelectric power dam. If they were to have created that dam, it would have destroyed the waterfall. And so many millions of people would have never known of the beauty of this waterfall if it wasn't for this woman. So let's break down what happened. So in essence, Tomas, her dad, refused the offer when foreign investors wanted to buy the waterfall, but later allowed for the land to be leased to a foreign investor. However, he didn't realize that the lease would allow for using the waterfall for the dam. So basically there was a loophole in the lease that was in essence kind of like a trick that the foreign investor used. After this, though, when Sigrid heard wind of it, she was like, no, I am not taking this. <laughs> there is no way I am allowing them to destroy this waterfall. And she was front and center when it came to protesting and trying to protect it. On several occasions, she walked to Reykjavik from her home, which is 120 kilometers each way which amounts to 74.6 miles each way that she walked to meet with government officials. And she had a lawyer as well that she was coming in to meet and to speak with. And there was a long legal battle. At one point when it seemed like all hope was lost, she threatened to throw herself into the waterfall. That's how far she was willing to go, was that she was willing to give up her life if it meant that it would potentially keep the waterfall intact. But thankfully, it never came to that. In the end, the foreign investors withdrew from the lease because they were unable to keep up with the cost and the complexities of the plan. And the waterfall was back in the hands of Icelanders. The government eventually bought the land and made it a permanent conservation site in 1979. If Sigurdur hadn't fought for this waterfall or hadn't tied up the investors in court fighting this legal battle for so many years things might have turned out very different for Gutfoss Waterfall. And just to put this also in perspective, when I talked with Andre Snyder, who is an Icelandic author, award-winning author, and environmentalist, this is not something that is special in terms of letting foreign investors potentially dam Icelandic waterfalls to harness power. This is something that almost happened not very long ago. And, and I'll link to the episode that I did with Andre Snyder when he talks about this because he was front and center as an environmentalist trying to protect Iceland's nature and these, you know, the water and everything else. So sometimes it ends up being, you know, greed and history repeating itself comes along and people just have to take action. And thankfully we have people like Sigurdur and Andre Snyder and all the different people in the world who are taking action and making their voices heard and also making it public to people to understand what it would mean if, you know, people were to come in and potentially dam some area or potentially come in and harness the power of a waterfall or whatever else. Because I think often when it comes to science and like talking about megawatts and it talks about like watts of power and blah, blah, blah. You can sometimes get lost in the scientific jargon and not understand what it means, but putting it in layman's terms, 
helps a lot of people. So yeah, I'm, I'm grateful to Sigurdur and I'm sure many of you who have either seen pictures of Gutsfoss Waterfall or in person are thankful that she saved it as well. Number four is Vigdis Finnbogadotter, who was born in 1930 and she is still living and she studied French and French literature in Paris. She has a Bachelor's of Arts in French and English, as well as a professional graduate certificate in education at, from the University of Iceland. She taught French and French drama at the university and worked for the Reykjavik Theatre Company. And at one point, she was the artistic director for that theatre company. In 1954, she married a physician and divorced in 1963. She became the first single woman in Iceland to adopt a child at the age of 41 and the first single mother to be elected as head of state. She also goes down in history as the world's first female who was democratically elected as president. And in this case, when I'm saying president, I'm talking about head of state because the role of president in Iceland is not the same as it is in the United States, for instance. It has a lot less power here. So like it's more comparable to say like the prime minister and the president of the United States in terms of duties and power. But head of state here is still important for sure. And actually at the time before Victis took that job, it was mostly ceremonial. And she helped us to kind of transform the head of state president role because she was so involved in spreading of like cultural awareness about Iceland and kind of being like the cultural ambassador. And she served in the job as president of Iceland for 16 years. She remains the longest serving elected female head of state of any country to date. And until this day, she is still Iceland's only female president. There was a lot going on leading up to the years before Victis ran for president including in 1975, which I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, uh, there was a general strike <laughs> of women in Iceland because they wanted to show that women's work was undervalued. And for the presidential election in 1980, the women's movement focused on electing a woman. So after much persuasion, Vigdis accepted to run against three male candidates. She was the first woman in the world to be elected president in a democratic election, or you could say head of state if you like to. And she narrowly, she was narrowly elected with 33.6% of the national vote, while her nearest rival got 32.1%. However, during her 16-year tenure, she won by a landslide or was unopposed <laughs> each time. <laughs> and she was very popular during her presidency. And like I mentioned become known as a cultural ambassador for the country. And in 1996, it was just basically like, she could have run again if she wanted, or she could have just decided to go up for re-election, but she decided not to, and decided just to kind of retire from that, from her tenure. But one major event that I want to mention that happened during her presidency was when Iceland hosted the Reykjavik summit between U.S. President Ronald Reagan and Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev about nuclear weapons. And that happened in 1986. So even though Reagan and Gorbachev left that summit without an agreement, it was a significant meeting because both sides learned the concessions each were willing to make. So in 1987, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty between the U.S. and the Soviet Union was created. 
After her presidency, she became founding chair of the Council of Women World Leaders at Harvard University. A couple of years after that, she was appointed president of the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization World Commission on the Ethics of Scientific Knowledge and Technology. She has always been aware that she is a role model for young women, and her model has been, quote, never let the women down, end quote. Last but certainly not least of the five badass women <laughs> that I'm featuring today is Johanna Segrudar Dostir, who was born in 1942 and is also still alive. I was actually surprised to find out she had worked as a flight attendant for Loftleder Icelandic Airlines from 1962 to 1971. The airline eventually merged with Iceland Air, but at the time she was an active labor union member and served twice as the chairperson for the board of the Icelandic Cabin Crew Association. So that was in 1966 and 1969. After taking an office job in 1971 in Reykjavik, she sat on the board of the Commercial Workers Union. In 1978, she was elected to Icelandic Parliament as a member of the Social Democratic Party. She was becoming known in the country for advocating for social justice and strengthening Iceland's welfare system. In 1987, she was named Minister of Social Affairs, and she held that role until 1994. She campaigned for the leadership role in her party, the Social Democratic Party, but was not successful. And this upset her very much to the point where she ended up raising her fist and saying, Mentime mun kuma, which means my time will come. So she ended up forming her own party called the National Movement. However, later on, she did reconcile with her former party in 1999. The two parties joined the Women's Alliance and the People's Alliance to run for election in 2000. Their coalition was known as a Democratic Alliance. Johanna was becoming so popular at the time, and she ended up returning to the Ministry of Social Affairs in 2007. Fortunately for her, which is kind of odd to say this, but the 2008 financial crisis worked in her favor because she was seen as a voice of calm during this really tumultuous period in Icelandic history. After the resignation of the prime minister at the time, Johanna, the Social Democrats and the Left Greens, formed a caretaker minority government. Johanna was formally sworn in as prime minister on February 1st, 2009, and became Iceland's first female prime minister. Social Democrats and Left Greens won 34 seats, which is a slim majority in the 63-member parliament in the April elections. Shortly after winning, Johanna announced that one of her top priorities as prime minister would be securing Iceland's membership in the European Union. If you're aware now, Iceland is not in the European Union, so even though it might have been a priority, I guess other people were just not having it, unfortunately, in parliament. In 2010, same-sex marriage became legal in Iceland. Johanna and her partner, who she'd been with for quite a long time and had been living in a, as a registered partnership, simply converted that registered partnership over to married status. By doing this simple act of filing paperwork, she became the world's first openly LGBT head of government. She was listed on Forbes as one of the most hundred most powerful women in the world. And during her time as prime minister, Iceland's economy got back to a stable place following the financial crisis. It also seemed like a new constitution for Iceland would be drafted 
25 Icelanders were selected to draft that constitution. They relied on feedback through email and social media, which was really innovative at the time. And it was approved by two thirds of those that voted for it in a non-binding referendum on October 12th. However, the process stalled once the draft of the constitution arrived to Parliament. Opposition by the Progressive and Independence Party stalled that process, and it's basically been stalled pretty much up until today. There has been talk recently, so in the end of 2020, there was a lot of talk about where is the new constitution, and that movement has been steadily growing. And I remember hearing Katrin Jakobsdottir you know, bringing it to parliament, not necessarily the con- the new constitution that had been drafted back then, but just the idea of changing the constitution that's currently in Iceland in order for it to be amended to meet modern day needs of the people in Iceland. But also that was, <laughs> was not getting much of anywhere in terms of people collaborating together. And I remember hearing Katrin say that she was just going to like draft something herself. So there's still like a lot of in limbo about this new constitution. And I think it's pretty unfortunate that for so many years, the one that had been drafted by the people was in essence left to sit in a drawer. And I know that Johanna has commented about that (laughs) in recent times as well. In 2013, she chose not to run for re-election And her once ruling coalition lost 18 of its 34 seats. So as you heard in this episode, such major impact and history made by the five women that I've mentioned today. You know, the future for generations coming of what they see as possible for themselves due to these women having the courage and also just being fed up (laughs) with not being treated equally, by focusing on social issues and progressing society in a way that's better for all of us, it's continuously, all of this work is continuously propelling the society forward here. And I know I'm grateful for it as a person who's come here as an immigrant, as an expat, whatever you want to call it. I have benefited from the work that these women have done, meaning at working in corporations and equal rights and different aspects of society. And and not and Iceland, of course, is not perfect. There are a lot of things being worked on, which I am so happy to see. And of course, many things that hopefully will be worked on in the future for all of us to have a more equal society. In terms of the little timeline that I mentioned to you, I just want to point out some dates in Icelandic history that I found to be really interesting to give you some insight. I will have a full list, which I did get from the Women's History Archives site, uh, but I'll have a list in my show notes. And of course, like I mentioned, any links to the archives for you to check out if you like. But just kind of starting off that in 1850, equal inheritance rights were put in place for men and women. In 1882, widows and single women gained local suffrage. And in 1914, the first Women's Workers Association was founded. In 1915, women over the age of 40 gained national suffrage and the right to hold office. So that's really interesting. There was like local suffrage and national suffrage for individuals. In 1920, all women gained national suffrage and the right to hold office. 1922, 
was when the first woman was elected to Icelandic parliament, which is Ingibjörg. 1961, the Equal Pay Act was approved by parliament. In 1975, women nationwide took the day off on October 24th. And I'm going to get into that in my next segment of the show, which is coming up soon. And 1980, the first nationally elected female president in the world, which is Victis. 1995, equal rights of women and men stated in the Constitution. In 1997, fathers got an independent right to two weeks paid paternal leave. So this is 1997. And after that time, it's been increasing in terms of paternal leave. But this was such a significant thing for families and the idea of men needing to be a part of the process of rearing their children and taking off time because women have to do it. And so the fact that, you know, this was written in and it feels like, oh, 1997 is so late. But for so many places, this has been an issue. So many countries has been an issue. So it's actually probably not that late (laughs) in comparison to maybe even places that don't even have something like this as an option. In 2009, the first female prime minister in Iceland, which is Johanna, in 2009, also the first government with equal number of men and women. That is so important. 2010, there was a law on gender quota on company boards. In 2012, the first female bishop in Iceland was named. In 2015, the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage in Iceland. So really big celebration. And in 2018, the act on equal treatment of individuals in the labor market, regardless of race, ethnic origin, religion, philosophy of life, disability, impaired working capacity, age, gender identity, or sexual expression. So as I'd mentioned before, women's rights comes down to equality. And as you can tell, like as I progressed through, we start to see equality on different levels in this timeline. And hopefully that continues as we go forward. So the random fact of the episode has to do with something that I was alluding to earlier, which has to do with Women's Day Off. And Women's Day Off is just a euphemism for striking, for women taking, for women striking in 1975. So as I mentioned earlier, in 1975, the United Nations announced that year would be International Women's Year. And just before 1975, to give you for reference, women that worked outside of the home in Iceland earned less than 60% of what men earned. So obviously this is very frustrating to them. And a feminist group in Iceland called Red Stockings, which I assume they were inspired or even affiliated with the Red Stockings of the women's liberation movement that was founded in 1969 in New York City, had the idea of taking a day off, end quote, as a way to honor that year. They felt that taking a day off sounded more appealing to the masses and would result in more women participating. Plus, some women might be fired if they were to strike, but they could request a day off. So for those who needed to be able to do that, this kind of gave them a way of being like, oh yeah, women's day off. The word about the day off spread in Iceland like, wildfire. Radio, TV, and newspapers ran the story, and there was even some international attention. The faithful day was on October 24th, 1975, in which 90% of women in Iceland took the day off or essentially went on strike. And this was to demonstrate the indispensable work of women for Iceland's economy 
and to protest wage discrepancy and unfair employment practices. Like I mentioned, women that worked outside of the home took off and those that were normally at home did not do any housework or child rearing for the whole day. Men had to take their children to work as well as scramble to feed themselves and the kids. So I'm sure that most kids ate a lot of hot dogs that day. (laughs) They're probably selling out of hot dogs. And that following year, Iceland's parliament passed a law guaranteeing equal pay. Now, Women's Day Off has happened, I believe, five times since. And this is still a problem, meaning like it is not equal everywhere. And even though there was a law passed about it, there have still been days where I've participated in where we've walked off the job and we were actually encouraged to do that. So you walk off given the time that you're not getting paid equally for. So let's just say if it were like, you know, women were paid nice and 70 cents for every dollar that a man makes, then we would leave at the time in which it would equate to 70% like of the day or something. And I remember here, it's happened twice since I've lived here, that we, I remember going twice since I've, um, since living here. And I remember hearing from the people at the CEOs of the company sending out an email being like, hey, you know, today there's going to be a gathering downtown in Oysterwörtler to, you know, protest and for advocation of women's rights. And people are leaving, women are leaving at 2.30 today or whatever the time frame was to go and do that. And they were like encouraging us to go. And I was like, you're encouraging me to leave? <laughs> and it's paid time, meaning like they're saying you're still going to get paid for the rest of the day and you can go and, and do this. Does that happen to every company? I don't know. I don't work at those other places. It's a possibility that it doesn't. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised at some places like, no, I'm not doing that. But I've been fortunate to have worked at places where that did happen and just found it so interesting that this was like allowed. This would never have happened in any of the companies I worked for in the United States. So just kind of an interesting cultural observation there. The Icelandic word of the episode is basically the right to vote, which is kosinkarjetur. And in essence, if you break the word down, kosink means vote and rjetur means right. So, right to vote. So, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Five Badass Women in Icelandic History. I know I definitely enjoyed researching and sharing this. If you enjoy content like this and want some exclusive content, you can join the All Things Iceland Patreon community. I have different levels of membership there and individuals who are members get the opportunity to live chat with me every month. They get to ask me anything. So I've asked me anything every month in which people can submit their questions and I answer them in a video. I do Folklore Friday every Friday. And I do post occasionally some like behind the scenes things or just like extra content that I find would be really interesting. As well as I've started adding the, as well as the benefit of future interviews that I haven't already pre-recorded. People who are Patreon members can send in questions for the people that I'm going to interview. So they, in essence, get a chance to know, first of all, who's going to be coming up in the future, but also the chance to submit a question that they might have. So this is a kind of fun benefit there to add more interaction in my interviews from those who are part of the Patreon community. 
There's a link in the show notes if you would like to check it out. My members in the Ausgardert tier, which basically, if you translate it, it means Asgard tier, which is the land of the gods. <laughs> they get a shout out each month. And those people are Oliver, Julia, Paul, Noah, Betty, Mark, and Danielle. And of course, thank you to everybody, whether you're a Patreon member, a listener, you watch my YouTube channel, follow me on Instagram, all of those is very much appreciated. And if you would like to join the Patreon community for extra content, you can do so via the link in the show notes, which is basically patreon.com forward slash all things Iceland. Vakatier kailegar ferir ap flusta og shams pleotlega.